Well, good morning again. Excited to be back in the pulpit uh, this morning with regard to our study of the book of Colossians. So take your Bible, and if you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. We were in chapter 3 so long that I want to say chapter 3. We're in chapter 4, and the people rejoiced. We did get there. So we're going to continue to look at verse 6 this morning. We began to consider the implications of Paul's teaching here and instruction with regard to evangelism and opportunities to proclaim the gospel, and we'll continue to unpackage that this morning um, as we continue to consider the issue of witnessing and evangelism um, in the series of messages that I've called Witnessing 101. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get started with this. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for what you've given to us. Thank you for um, the benefits of being the redeemed of Christ, the fact that we get to rest in the finished work of Christ only. We look to Him alone, rest in Him alone, trust in Him alone, rely upon Him alone. Thank you for all of that. Thank you for the hope and the comfort and the peace and the joy and the contentment that brings to us. Even in the face of challenges and difficulties, we are able to rest in what Christ has provided and who He is. Thank you, Lord, for that. Help us, Lord, to understand the words that you've given to us in Colossians today. Help us to appreciate this call to witnessing and to evangelism and the, and the methods that we use to accomplish that. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of the plan that you have put in place to redeem your elect. We rejoice that we have this opportunity, even though we face challenges in it, and times it is difficult, and at times it leads to persecution and separation and even death. We pray, Lord, for those folks around the world today who will and are paying the ultimate sacrifice for proclaiming Christ, losing opportunity, losing property, losing family, losing their own lives. We lift them up to you. We ask that you would keep them, preserve them, protect them, Lord. We look forward to the day when you will return and these things will be ended, and we will rest in your finished work for all of eternity, rejoicing that we are known by you and proclaiming great glory to your name. We praise you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. It's interesting we saw that word mystery this morning in the book of Revelation, did we not? Chapter 10. And so again, the mystery, when we find that phrase in Scripture, refers to the proclamation of the Word, the gospel. And that's significant. And so We want to make certain that we're understanding this, that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, that the Word of God is preached correctly, properly, in its full content. Verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, as you will know how you should respond to each person. And so we've taken the time to begin to unpackage the meaning of these two passages in verse 5 and verse 6 of chapter 4. Paul instructs on prayer. He makes the focus of prayer the idea of devotion in the terms of being devoted to prayer and rejoicing in who we are as the redeemed, praying for opportunities to proclaim the gospel, praying for opportunities, those who are involved in ministry, that they would have opportunity. Here Paul was asking for prayer for him and Timothy specifically, that he would be able to communicate effectively the Word of God. 
And now the opportunity has come to do that in the context of our own witness and our own prayers in that regard being answered. And he gives instruction with respect to that. Now, last week, we considered the idea of what that might look like. Paul says in verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Wisdom is knowledge and action. Outsiders are the unregenerate. We, as the redeemed of Christ, understand God's word in terms of who we were before God saved us. And so with understanding that, we then communicate the gospel as God gives opportunity, understanding that God used the proclamation of his word to bring about their salvation of the elect. And we make the most of those opportunities. As they come to us, as they're presented providentially, we take advantage of them. And we need to be attentive and to be watchful for those opportunities because they can come in a moment's notice. They can come at times when you least expect them. They can come when you may not feel like it. Jerry Bridges has an interesting comment in his book, Transforming Grace, that he's talked to a number of people or he comments on the issue of the fact that oftentimes people believe that when they sin, they can't witness. Well, then we would never have any witnesses, right? We think we have to be kind of worthy to witness. Well, our worthiness is in Christ. That's a wrong perception about what salvation is. And that's a problem. And even in the context of when we sin, we still ought to be salt and light. And of course, we're called to be that. And we'll look at that briefly this morning as well. But as we move and as we considered last Sunday, we talked about the fact that witnessing can be challenging. We saw different examples of witnessing. We considered Paul in Acts chapter 17 um, when he's engaged with the Greeks and they're ones who are looking for wisdom and, and, and they're engaged in this kind of philosophical discussion about different things, but he goes into their midst and he doesn't acquiesce and give in to their Epicureanism or their Stoicism or anything like that. He just gives the facts about who God is and who is Jesus Christ and their need for a Savior. And remarkably, as we know from that, that narrative in Acts 17, God uses that to save some. Now, now, you and I typically would approach that situation perhaps a little bit differently to the point where we would just not even really say much of anything. But Paul, he just cuts to the chase. They're worshiping an unknown God. He talks to them about the God that is the God and the fact that they need to know this God. And by the way, this God created all the things that you see and that he is in control of everything. And by the way, you're going to have to give an account to him and turn to Christ and, and, and cry out for salvation. And some do. Some don't, but some do. Now, maybe some may not have in some context. We may say, well, no one ever responds. That's not up to me and you to make them respond. Do you understand that? This is the problem with the idea of seeker-sensitive churches. First of all, none seeks, no one seeks is what God's word, Romans chapter 3. Not in the context of what we understand that word to mean. Are people curious, perhaps? There are, there's, some, there's a curiosity about religion. Would you agree with me about that? People typically have a sense of, I mean, you can go into to, to pagan villages and they're worshiping something, right? They'll have some deity. It's a frog, a tree, a goat, a cat. I, I just can't imagine a cat. Maybe a goat, maybe. But a cat? Come on. I mean, I'm teasing. But nonetheless, there is a sense in which people seek to worship something. And we find Paul just presenting the clear facts. We find that same case to be true with Christ with the woman at the well, do we not? John 4. He talks to her about the living water. She's getting water from the well. And he deals with what? The issue that's in her life. She's got five husbands. She's had five husbands. She's on her way to number six, it would appear. And he, he deals with her in the context of her life and her sin and offers her the, that which is the living hope that's himself, ultimately, which is significant. We see that example. We saw Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3. We have God commissioning Ezekiel to take a message to a people who are rebellious and hard-hearted. And, and, and God tells Ezekiel, they are rebellious people. They're not going to listen to you. I want you to set your face like flint. 
And I want you to go to them and I want you to proclaim my word. I want you to tell them, thus saith the Lord. And what happens? That's what he does. Now, what's going to happen with the message? I don't know. I don't know. Jonah went into Nineveh. Well, first he didn't, but then he did. And Jonah was given a message. And what happens? God saves Nineveh. Salvation is of the Lord. I have to understand that when I'm engaged in witnessing, that ought to give you and I a boldness. In, John, in Revelation chapter 10, John reminds us that Christ stands over all of creation, a foot on the land, a foot on the sea, that speaks metaphorically to his control over everything, and that the word is to go forth into all of the world. He has the book, it's open. We are to be proclaimers of the gospel because Christ is in charge. It's his word and he will see to its effectiveness. And I don't have to be goofy about it. I don't have to be silly. I don't have to be a a, a fool about it. So when Paul says in Colossians, and this is what I want you to understand this morning. In verse six, well, first of all, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders I'm going, to, I'm going to combine these two verses in a way to help you see something that's very important because there's really a two effective ways to witness. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So the message is important. The content of the message is important. And Paul wants to make certain that what we're communicating is not something just about ourselves or about how we feel about a situation, but that it's based upon some objective truth, which is what? God's Word. God's Word. So for Paul here this this morning, we need to make certain that we understand that witnessing is really not so much what we see today where we have people, as my dad used to say, dressing up like clowns to witness to the circus engaging in all sorts of nonsense to make something appealing to a person that is never going to be drawn in that manner necessarily. That is to kind of compromise down to their base level in order to make God's word appealing to them. What Paul is certainly not saying is that in the context of witnessing that we're just giving people a little Jesus jelly or Jesus jam to spread on their problems. That's not what Paul is talking about. There's clearly an effective witness here that's at play, and Paul wants to make certain that we're understanding that. It can be difficult. It can be challenged. The message can cause indigestion, as John says in Revelation chapter 10. There is a bitterness to it, even though the word of God is sweet to us. It's challenging to communicate these things at times. It's challenging in terms of the content of the message, the judgment that's attendant with those who are outside of Christ. It's bitter to us, too, because it can bring about persecution and the loss of life, as we know has been the case throughout the history of the church. But we do it anyway. And we do it because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and because we know that people need the Lord. And we know that the only message of hope that they can hear is about Jesus Christ. Is about Jesus Christ. J. Gresham Machen noted in response to the slipping of the church into liberalism and he lamented that fact and he noted in an address to the evangelicals of his day the following what i need first of all is not exhortation now i want you to pay attention to what he's saying and this is where we need to be careful because we fall into these traps friends i do you do I have to be mindful as a preacher that I'm not here to simply exhort you to be better or to give you a good advice or have a TED talk with you, to give you some type of path to success. But I'm here to proclaim God's word. I'm a, I'm a minister of the gospel. And, and, and so what I have, that's my calling. And the minute I stop it, you have to throw me out. You understand that, Right? So you have to understand, so, so, so Machen is lamenting this issue. He says, what I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. 
not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. So I want you to think about that for a minute. So when I go back and I look at Colossians, when he says in verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, in the back of my mind, I am remembering who I was before God saved me. Because Paul makes reference to the fact outsiders are the unregenerate, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. So I'm being mindful of who my audience is. And so Machen is saying, I'm being cognizant of that. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel, not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. When you're witnessing to somebody, you're not going to just give them a little little gospel jam to spread over the problem. You're going to get to the heart of the matter. Jesus did with the woman at the well. Paul did in the book of Acts with the philosophers in Acts 17. Ezekiel is going to go to a people and tell them, thus saith the Lord, you're a sinner, you're under judgment, you stand condemned, turn to God. Turn to Christ. Repent. Jonah went into Nineveh with a message of what? Repentance. Repent. He dealt with their state. So this is the issue. So you don't want to give them a solution to have a better life. You want them to understand their need for the gospel. How God saves. And so the question he asked then is this, Machen does, have you any good news? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? Will you not tell me the facts? This is what people need to hear. They need to hear the facts. They need to hear that they stand condemned. They need to understand that they are under judgment. They need to understand that there is a price that's going to be paid. Either you're going to pay it or you're going to trust in the one who paid it. Right? This is important. We need to be mindful of the fact that people are under judgment. There's a fierceness to God's wrath that is coming upon the world. We know that from the book of Revelation. We've been studying that. Revelation 9 speaks to that. Revelation 10 says, keep preaching. Keep preaching until I say stop. Keep preaching. Even though it's bitter, even though it's hard, keep preaching. Set your face like flint. Don't stop. Michael Horton, in his book, Christless Christianity, notes this. We must be stripped of our fig leaves in order to be clothed with Christ's righteousness so we can stand in the judgment of a holy God. But here's the problem. He laments and notes this. The question is whether the aim of ministry today is to tear off our fig leaves so we can be clothed with Christ or to help us add a few more. And this is what a lot of ministry does. We're just adding fig leaves. We're not tearing them off. Remember, in the garden, the fig leaf was inadequate, wasn't it? They needed something else. They needed Christ. Ezekiel was sent to strip them bare, to tear off any pretension, any self-righteousness. That's a hard message. That's the bitter message. That's the message that he had to deliver with his face, face set like flint against their rebellious hearts. You and I will get that. We see that. We've experienced that, perhaps. But we have to keep in mind that the message that we are delivering is a message of good news. It's not good advice, friends. We're not giving people good advice. We are giving them the words of life. It is good news. We are heralds. We are called ambassadors. We serve a king who has entrusted us with an important message. Take my message to the world. This is good news. I have come to save the lost. We're not just merely giving people advice for self-improvement. It's not mere information or a program for self-improvement. If it was, it would just simply be what? Good advice or good ideas or good enlightenment. But it's not. It's the good news. News, as we know, does something, doesn't it not? 
news disrupts and rearranges things in our senses. We hear information about things and it causes us to change perceptions and views of certain things because of the news. We see this, do we not? The gospel is the good news. And interestingly enough, in the New Testament, the word that's used for good news in the Greek was often used in the context of announcing a military victory. Someone comes running over the hill to the city. This, the war is over. The siege is, is relented. The victory is ours. It, we have won. It's good news. The herald doesn't come with just mere good advice. No, it's good news. And so too, you and I are delivering a message of hope and victory and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Put away the Jesus jelly. Get rid of the gospel jam. Stop smearing the Bible over people's problems and get to the heart of the matter. What if Jesus had said to the woman at the well, you know what, you just need to kind of stop marrying so many men. You know, just stop. Can you just stop that? You know, maybe if you were nicer and more pleasant, they would want to stay married to you longer. He doesn't do that. He goes to the very heart of the issue. He goes to her heart and her need for him. Because that's the only resolution to her sin, right? He's dealing with her sin. When Paul goes to the philosophers of his day in Acts 17, he doesn't conjole and twist the message in order to appease their desire for wisdom. Rather, rather he goes to the heart of the message with respect to who Jesus Christ is and their need for a Savior. And their need for a Savior. That's the good news, is it not? It's good news not good advices. We're not life coaches. We're not TED talkers. We're proclaimers of a message that belongs to someone else, the King, Jesus. You're an ambassador in that way. So, now, let's think about something here for a moment. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this down into two parts as it relates to um, the, the, the witness that's, that's spoken of here. Paul says in verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Okay, we understand what that means. Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Well, that's significant. And, and I do want to talk about what that means in terms of the language that Paul is using here as it relates to how one is to be engaged in witnessing. Witnessing. There are two aspects to this. Now, we have, we have heard so many times phrases like, be the gospel. Um, you know, there's that phrase or that catchy little slogan that we hear so often times, um, proclaim the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's nonsense. Okay, you and I are not the gospel. That's not what the gospel is. Now, can we be engaged in patterns of behavior that will cause people to ask questions about why we act the way that we do? Sure, we will. Most certainly. Look at, let's look at this uh, for a moment. Um, John. Go to the Gospel of John with me. John 13. Well, let's do this. Let's go back. Let's just go back to Matthew for a moment. All right? Sword drill time. Now, I want you to pay, pay attention. All right? Matthew chapter 5. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We've got the Beatitudes. Verse 9 is important because verse 9 is about evangelism. 
Okay? Verse 9, and it's interesting what follows verse 9. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay? Now, we're not Mormons. We don't become little Jesuses. That's not what he's talking about, but it demonstrates the reality of one's conversion. That's what we're speaking to here. Those who are indeed involved in being peacemakers are legitimately Christians. Why? Because we're gospel proclaimers, correct? Sunday school teachers here are peacemakers. Why? Because we're telling children, we're telling those in our charge about Jesus Christ and how they can have peace with God. What's the peace about? Is the peace about their personal contentment and joy and fulfillment? No. Their peace is the fact that they are now relieved from the judgment of God, right? You're going to shine the light into that darkness, and you're going to tell them, friend, you are under condemnation. You stand condemned. God is going to judge you. There will come a day when you will give an account, and you will do it on your own outside of Christ, and that means an eternity in hell, separated from any context of God's love, but understanding his full orb justice in the context of his wrath. Peacemakers are people who tell other people that news. That's the bad news, right? But the good news is that Jesus Christ resolves that. He absorbs that judgment, that wrath, that justice for us. He paid it all. He did it all. In the bulletin, I gave you a little acrostic about the gospel to kind of help you in your mind remember some of the elements of the gospel. As you're witnessing, you can kind of pull that back out of your head. One of the elements, one of the terms in there speaks to the idea that Jesus did it alone, Christ alone, right? So, listen, look at me, look at this. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Look at verse 10. It's interesting that verse 10 follows verse 9, not numerically, but in the terms of its content. The idea being is that as you're a peacemaker, guess what's going to happen? It's likely that you're going to be persecuted for it what it says. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, there are two ways in which we can consider this particular aspect of the Beatitudes. Interestingly enough, verse 10 says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. This speaks to the idea of people who are living out the reality of their faith. Standing, standing counter to the culture, standing counter to people's sin, who's demonstrating the reality of their conversion because of their love of righteousness, of, of things of God, of Christ. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are kingdom dwellers, are we not? Blessed are you when people then, in verse 11, is more in regards to the idea of what people say back to you when you're making the proclamation of the gospel. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Paul experienced that. Christ experienced that. Peter experienced that. You may have experienced that. It may be from a family member. It could be from your own children. It could be a friend at work. It could just be in the community in general. That happens. And of course, we're supposed to do what? Be like Ezekiel. Set your face like Flint. Stand firm. Don't give in. Don't cave in. It's unfortunate that there's been so much cave-in that we need books that are being written like Rosaria Butterfield about not living in the context of the lies that are being told about sin. Why is that book necessary? Sadly, because the church has caved in. That's why that book's necessary. That's a, that's a condemnation on the church, frankly. She's writing that book to make certain that Christians aren't buying into the lies of what they're being told about these issues today. That's, that's problematic. So we have these pictures here. So we have the context of witnessing in this regard. Peacemakers, people who are telling other people about Jesus Christ. It's going to result in persecution simply because your conduct is one that demonstrates the reality of, of, the rea- the, of, of your conversion, your salvation, or because you're being a gospel proclaimer. So John chapter 13. Now, We can look at this. John chapter 13. 
verses 34 and 35. Now, okay, I want to be very careful here. Paul, in Colossians, speaks to the reality of the new creation lifestyle, okay? He, he, he talks about the fact that we've been redeemed, talks about the fact that we belong to Christ, we've been taken out of that dark kingdom, placed into the kingdom of light, we're no longer hostile and alienated, we're new creation in Jesus Christ. The reality of which then plays out in the way that we act. Remember, chapter 3, we're clothed, we're given a new suit of clothing that is different than what we had as the old man. So our life is different. We have a new nature. So we flee sexual immorality. We don't engage in abusive language. Let's just, so keep your finger here in John 13. Let's just go back to Colossians just for a second because I want to make certain that we're getting this. As we live out the reality of this new self that God has given to us through Christ, and we've been tailored in it, he says in verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Christians are different, right? And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. For Paul, then, this new creational lifestyle plays out in the way that we live. Other people are going to see this, all right? Paul then in verse 12 identifies virtues then that come out of this new self. The reality of the new self is demonstrated in the way that we now act, live, and talk, right? He tells me that because he says in verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Now, this is about Christians. I'm I'm assuming that I'm talking to Christians this morning So as a Christian, your response, your reaction, your living is to be marked predominantly by this. Do we fail sometimes? Yes. But it should not be the pattern or habit. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We get into the whole issue of forbearing, forgiving. Then he talks about the way Christians live in their home. Wives, submit to your husbands. That context of submission incorporates the principles of love. Husbands, love your wife as Christ has loved the church. Children, obey your parents. That's a good thing. Dads, don't be heavy-handed at home. Oh, and by the way, slaves, love your masters. Do what they ask. Do it heartily as unto the Lord because it's him you're really serving. So for Paul, the reality of our conversion plays out in the way that we live. Okay? People see that. People will understand that you're different. People will apprehend that you're a different person because you're now living in the context of this new self. So one of the ways that we are an effective witness, it's not that we're living the gospel, it's that we're demonstrating the reality of what the gospel did to us, right? We're we're new creation. That's what the gospel does. It makes new people. It takes that which was dead and makes them alive. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives within me. Paul in Galatians 2. So what happens then is that I'm going to then do something that's different than what the world does. I hate to do this to you, but to go back to Matthew 5 for a minute. Okay? I want to make certain that you're getting this. So the Beatitudes are followed by the similitudes. Paul says in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Remember, salty and lighty. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let 
your light shine before men in such a way, look at what it says, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So even in the context of the light that's being spoken of, it's tied to the way that Christians live and act. For Paul, that's a reality too. That's why he gives all of these types of things in terms of the household codes and the way that we ought to conduct ourselves with our wife and with our husband and with our kids and with, in the context of slaves and masters, that dynamic. So then in John, Jesus does this in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now look at verse 35. This is striking. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Go back to Colossians. Why am I doing the things that are, that, that, that are happening here in context of our living? I'm doing them because Jesus Christ is has changed me, I love him, and I love other people. What are the commandments? Love your neighbor as yourself, and the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? That's what Jesus is doing. So one of my witnessing tools is my conduct. Now, it's, it's not that that usurps the proclamation of the gospel, but Jesus clearly tells me that people will know who I am by the way I live and most predominantly by the way I live with the redeemed. Paul, Christ says here, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Verse 34, it goes back, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is so important. So for Paul... The idea, ultimately, is a life that demonstrates the reality of conversion when he talks about in Colossians chapter 4, in the context of these issues, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We do have that issue of communicating and effectively proclaiming the gospel, but we also have conduct in verse 5. We also have the way that we live, the way that we engage, the way that we we, 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 we Communicate the gospel to people. For Christ, this is important. For us, it should be important too. All people will know. That's quite an amazing statement. If I love my wife differently, if I love my husband differently, people will see that. People will know that. I mean, look at the way the world does it. Look at the way the world conducts itself in that regard. But if we mirror what's in the world, if our conduct, if our speech is no different than what the world is doing in terms of how we love our wife, how we love our husband, how we raise our children, how children behave, and in the context of what Paul was talking about about slaves, he anticipated that their life would be marked in such a different way that people would be really shocked by it in light of what was going on in that culture at that time, creating gospel opportunities. I think we've missed the mark here on this issue, this issue of love. Love is light to a dark world. People look at us, people see the church. You know what's unfortunate? How do most people see the church? Full of hypocrites, full of mean people. How many people have told me, I'm not going to go to church because the people are just mean? Now, you know, oftentimes that's coming from people who are looking for opportunities to be hard on the church, but in many respects, it's also true. We eat our young. We do. We're hard on people. Christ says, the world will see a difference and know that you're my disciples by the way you love each other. Wow. Wow. Now, look at this. There's, there's more. Turn to 1 John. This was super important to John, not to steal Joel's thunder, 
but to come alongside. John 1, I mean the whole epistle, just is driven by this very theme that's communicated in John chapter 13. I'm certain that he remembers and recalls what Christ says in that context. So John 1, 7 through 11. I'm sorry, John 2. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. Ah, right, he's not. But an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning, the old commandment, which is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so Christians are called to be lovers of each other, lovers of the redeemed. Where does that happen? In the church. This is why stay-at-home church doesn't work. This is why remote church is a failure. This is why the church is imploding because of those issues. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Verse 23 of chapter 3, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and what? Love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. First John chapter 4, Verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I mean, this is very clear what the exhortation, this is consistent with John 13 and 34 and 35. I'm going to know you're my disciple by the way you love each other. And the world is going to see that and comprehend that. And the, it's interesting, Christ says that by the way you love your brother and sister in Christ, that the world's going to know that you're his disciple. That's amazing. Verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, <laughs> if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Wow. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his, of, of, of his spirit. So, one way to witness, one way to be an effective witness is the way that we conduct ourselves amongst ourselves, with each other, the implication being that the world is going to see us, wonder about it, and know that we belong to Christ. Know that we are different. Know that we have been made new. Know that we conduct ourselves differently in many respects. Peter was concerned about this. Look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.12 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may become, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We love each other, wives loving their husbands, husbands loving their wives, dads being good dads, children that, who profess to know Christ, being obedient to their parents, slaves who are Christians obeying their masters. That's different. That's radically different. It's so different that people see it. And people go, what on earth is going on? 
Why are they doing that? And there's an open door. Pray for open doors, right? Colossians, pray that the God would open doors. How does he do that? Well, people are going to know who you are by the way you conduct yourselves. That may give opportunity to proclaim. Paul would, Peter anticipates that, 315 of the same epistle. We looked at this last Sunday briefly, but sanctify or honor Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense or an advocacy or a proclamation to everyone who asks you to give an account. Why? Can I ask you a question? Why do you love your husband so much? Why, why do you treat him the way that you do? I see that what you do is, I would never treat my husband that way. I can't stand the guy. But you're always kind, even when he isn't kind to you. You're, 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 you're always kind to him. Why? What's going on? What's happening? Think about the slave, slave, slave on the street. What, that, that guy's really mean to you. But, but, but you're always kind to him. You always do what he says. Why are you doing that? Why are you acting that way? Why don't you, why don't you run away? Why don't you punch him in the mouth? All those people over there, Community Bible Church, they're so nice to each other and they help each other and they're always looking for opportunities to serve and to sacrifice. What, what are, what's going on with you guys over there? Are you crazy? What's happening? How are people going to know that we're the disciples of Christ? Our behavior, first and foremost, is different. We live differently. Peter anticipates that the difference in living is so much so that when people revile us 2.12, that we'll be able to rebuff that and we'll also be able to use that opportunity to do this, to sanctify, honor Christ as Lord in my heart, always being ready to make a defense, an account, an argument, an advocacy to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This goes back to Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, that, that winsome response, that, that, that the, the idea of being attractive or appealing in character. People don't like a person with a hard mouth. People don't like other people who are harsh and hard, and when they see the fact that they're not that way in other people, they are curious about it. This is what Paul speaks to. Now, that's not the gospel. It's the result of the gospel. All right? We're still going to use words. That's right. It's evidence. It's evidence. And so for us, friends, we have to remember that this is our calling. Where are you in the context of what John has been talking about? Where are you with respect to living out the reality of the new clothing and the new clothing that you've been given? Where are you in the reality of what Christ has said will be the mark of your being a disciple of Him? Do we truly love one another? Now again, that word love is agape, that ability to love somebody in a way that's different than the way the world loves. We're not talking about eros, erotic love, or even friendly love. Phileo, brotherly love. We're, we're talking about this unique ability that the Christian has to love that's God-given, spirit-driven. And the anticipation is that that's going to be insanely evident in the life of a Christian for Paul in their home and the way they live in the world. In the Beatitudes, let your light so shine before men. How am I going to do that? I'm going to live different than the world lives. I'm no longer in the darkness. I'm in the light. I love Jesus Christ, and I'm going to let people know by the way I live. And when they ask me, I'm going to be able to tell them why. I was a poor, wretched, vile sinner under God's judgment and wrath, and by His grace and mercy, He saved me. He saved me. Can I talk to you about Jesus Christ? Can I tell you about Jesus Christ? Can I tell you about the man who came and lived for me and died for me and carried it all and buried it all and was raised again and he ascended and he's reigning and ruling and he's coming back? He's coming back. 
But he's not coming back to judge me. He's coming back to take me home with him. There's no condemnation. I do not stand. Am I a sinner? Absolutely. Do I fail? I do. But I am in Christ. I am in Christ. And he loves me. Friend, where are you in this? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And in so doing, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Oh, we may say, well, my neighbor, I can't stand him. Well, then guess what? He's your enemy. What do you do with enemies? You love them. You may say, well, I can't stand. I can't stand my husband. I can't stand my wife. I can't stand my kids. Okay. At the base level, they're your neighbor. At the worst level, they're your enemy. And at the other level, they're your kids that God's given to you. So guess what? You're going to love them. Who were you when God saved you? You were his enemy. Paul says that you were at enmity, in a state of fixed hostility, and he saved you. Who do you think you are to not extend that to other people? That's what Paul says in Colossians 3, when we forbear and forgive, do it as Christ did for you. Friends, one of the effective tools of our witness is the way in which we love and showing that in our conduct towards people and people see it. People watch. You know they do. People watch. People need the Lord. Live out the reality of your salvation by the way we love each other, the way you love other people. And God will open that, use that to open doors for gospel proclamation. That's clearly what's being taught here. Clearly what's being taught. Next week we'll talk a little bit more about the effective communication of the gospel and wrap up this section of this epistle. Lord, we love you. Thank you for what you've given to us in your word. Forgive us for not loving each other as we should. Forgive us for not being cognizant of the great gift that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. May we let our light so shine before men by the way that we love each other, by the way that we conduct ourselves, living out the reality of our gospel transformation, the fact that we are the redeemed of Christ by and through the gospel, using that then as opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Give us those doors, open them please for us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.